Hi all, and welcome to Thermonuclear Takes, the loose news show that we sometimes like to put out around these parts to discuss those breaking news items that don't fit in with the current series. If you're a new listener, hello. This is not quite how we normally do things, but sometimes there are just too many science and technology stories in the news that I want to talk about, so I throw out some quick thoughts on them as a bonus episode like this. So if this is your first episode, why not listen to the Fusion series from the start, or just go through the back catalogue and pick whichever episode takes your fancy? Now for the rest of you diehards who don't mind an episode that I scripted rather hastily, let's dive in. First off, plenty of people have been messaging me with the rather striking news that a teenage boy, who was 12 at the time and is 14 now, has built a fusion reactor in his bedroom. Now given that I'm currently spending hours upon end telling you the long and storied history of attempts to achieve nuclear fusion, and believe me there's an awful lot of failure and premature celebrations yet to come in that particular story, does this completely turn everything on its head? So the hero of this particular tale is a boy called Jackson Oswalt, who, when reading about nuclear fusion, decided that he'd just built his own nuclear reactor in his own playroom. His parents claimed to be totally ignorant about precisely what he was doing. I do hope that that's not entirely true, because apparently they spent between eight dollars and $10,000, and given that the kid was messing around with high-voltage electricity and potentially damaging radiation, you hope that they would know at least a vague idea of what he was doing and that it was safe. Quote, the start of the process was just learning about what other people had done with their fusion reactors, explained Jackson. After that, I assembled a list of parts I needed. I got those parts off eBay primarily, and then, oftentimes, the parts that I managed to scrounge off of eBay weren't exactly what I needed, so I'd have to modify them to be able to do what I needed for the project. Well, before you start dreaming of a future where this kid rules as the benevolent dictator and single-handedly saves us all from climate change with fusion reactors that we've built from eBay parts, the key sentence here is the first one. This isn't the first time that someone has built a fusion reactor at home. Nor is it even the first time that a teenager has done it. Jackson Oswalt was actually inspired by another teenager, Taylor Wilson, who built his own nuclear fusion reactor at the age of just 14 back in 2008. Taylor Wilson went on to have an extraordinary amount of fame off the back of his achievement, and he's delivered TED Talks about building his reactor that have been viewed by millions of people. There's even a book about him. And, you know, he's gone on to do other things in science as well. So as you're probably expecting at this point, there is something of a catch here. After all, a team of international scientists are spending billions of dollars and many decades building a colossal fusion reactor, the Eta Tokamak in the south of France, which has been 30 years in the planning and still isn't done. If they could have just got a few American teens to do it, why are they bothering? Well, what Jackson and Taylor actually built is something called a fuser. The basic principle of operation is this. You create a big voltage between two metal cages suspended in a vacuum. If you then heat up some deuterium, you inevitably get deuterium ions, the electrons stripped away. You don't even need to heat the deuterium that much, as its single electron is quite loosely bound as electrons go. These are positively charged nuclei of hydrogen then, with one extra neutron in the nucleus. Deuterium nuclei. Fusion fuel. Since they're positively charged, you can accelerate them in the electrical field that's established across the gap between the cages. If that potential difference is very large, say 30,000 volts, then you can accelerate the nuclei to very quick speeds. It's actually pretty simple to calculate this. The nucleus has a charge of one proton, which is the same as an electron. So if it's accelerated by 30,000 volts by traveling across that potential gap, then it has 30,000 electron volts of energy. That means it's traveling at around 1600 kilometers per second. Now, of course, as the ions fall, they collide with each other and that changes the distribution of energy. So some are moving more quickly and some are moving more slowly. So this picture where the ions all have the same energy isn't quite right. But that's the typical kind of energy you need to put into each ion for the system to have enough energy to fuse. 
What happens then is that as the ions fall towards the negatively charged metal cage, the vast majority of ions just crash straight into it. They dissipate their energy and they're lost. This does make fuses look pretty cool, as the cage that's being bombarded with ions will tend to glow brightly, but most of that is just the energy that you're putting into the electric field to accelerate the ions, rather than any energy that's actually being produced through fusion. However, a very small number of these ions will, before they manage to hit the cage, collide with each other, and some of them will have enough kinetic energy to push past their electrostatic repulsion and get close enough for the strong force to take over, and then they fuse. So a fuser of this kind will produce a very small number of thermonuclear reactions, where the deuterium nuclei actually fuse. So it's accurate to say, I guess, that it is a fusion reactor. Unfortunately, you can probably see where the problem is here. Since the vast majority of ions don't collide and fuse with each other, and just smash straight into the negative charge that they're attracted towards, all that energy is wasted. Last episode we talked about stellarators and perhapsotrons, and the aim behind each of these devices was to try and confine the plasma for a longer time, rather than letting it escape, because every time it escapes you lose all the energy associated with that particle. Fuses don't really make much of an attempt to confine the plasma, so only a tiny fraction of the nuclei will be lucky enough to fuse, and so you will maybe get out 0.001% of the energy you put in, released when the nuclei fuse with each other. In other words, as a really cool science experiment, and even as a source for low doses of neutrons, because you can pick up the radiation signal from these devices with a good Geiger counter, fuses are pretty awesome. But there's a reason we're spending billions of dollars on tokamaks and giant lasers and not still building fuses. It's very difficult to make them work in a way that gives you more energy out than you put in. However, it is worth pointing out that there are plenty of people who are looking into modified versions of the fuser, whether refined, more complex versions of the same idea, perhaps with some magnetic fields to help confine the plasma, or force it to collide more often. Maybe some tweak to this might be able to produce more power than you put in. So this field of research is generally called inertial electrostatic confinement fusion, if you want to look it up. And for reasons that we'll come on to later in the fusion series, it may well be promising indeed as a means of actually making fusion power commercial. There are some problems with electrostatic confinement fusion in general. For example, if the ions are allowed to collide and interact with each other, inevitably, some will be too cold to fuse, the energy from these is therefore wasted, and some will be too hot and will escape the confinement of the device altogether. You also expect that, as you've got all these ions colliding with each other, accelerating and decelerating, you're going to lose a lot of energy due to X-ray emissions. This is a problem that we've already seen plagued a lot of early fusion devices, and ultimately meant that they had to get larger and more complex over time. But there are plenty of private startups and research labs looking into variants of the fuser, such as the Polywell device, in the hope that they can get one of them to produce more energy than it takes to run, and we'll discuss their efforts in future episodes. All of this is to say that Jackson Oswalt, who has spent his teenage years far more productively than I have spent mine, deserves more than misleading headlines about his achievement. Goodness knows that the fusion field doesn't need any more misleading headlines announcing miracle breakthroughs where none actually exist. But instead of that, let's just appreciate the engineering brilliance of the kid and hope that this experience inspires him, and plenty of others, to pursue careers in science, without hailing him as the saviour of humanity just yet. Okay, on to the next story then, and this one, I'm afraid, is a whole lot less feel-good. It owes to a paper that was recently published in Nature Geoscience and brilliantly written up for Quanta magazine by the inimitable Natalie Walchover, who is probably my favourite science writer out there at the moment. Her stuff is consistently excellent and you can find lots of it at Quanta. One of the problems that we have in predicting the climate system is that it's very complicated. 
Not only is it so complicated, but our actions are going to push it into territory that we simply haven't seen before. Already, CO2 emissions from humans have pushed carbon dioxide to about 410 parts per million in the atmosphere, the highest it's been for more than 800,000 years. Global mean temperatures are higher than we as humans have ever seen them before. The sea ice extent in the Arctic has retreated further than we've ever measured, and so on and so forth. To predict the future, we rely on observations, and we rely on models of what those observations mean, and physical laws that are well tested, as in all physics. You can actually predict what will happen to global mean temperature because of carbon dioxide alone quite well. These predictions were first made in the 70s and 80s, and they rely on a nice, fairly simple model of energy balance. The Earth receives shortwave radiation from the Sun. It emits longwave infrared radiation back out to space. The balance between this incoming and outgoing radiation, to first order, determines the temperature of the Earth. The hotter the Earth is, the more longwave radiation it emits. These are all basic laws of physics. When we dump greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, which trap longwave radiation, less longwave radiation can escape. So to return to thermal equilibrium then, so that not more energy is coming in than is leaving, the planet has to heat up to compensate. So you don't need that much physics to calculate to first order how the Earth is likely to respond to changing CO2 amounts. But the Earth is not just an inert rock that responds in one direction when you kick it. In our episodes on the physics of climate change we talked about feedbacks. The classic example is the ice caps. They reflect sunlight, and hence energy, away from the Earth. Heat up the Earth and they melt. Less radiation is reflected, and so the Earth heats up more. Now this is part of, but far from the only reason, why the Arctic is currently warming faster than anywhere else. One of the major uncertainties associated with the climate has been our difficulties in getting clouds right. Clouds are extremely important to the energy balance of the climate. High cirrus clouds act a little bit like a greenhouse gas. They absorb outgoing longwave radiation and hence act to heat up the planet. Low clouds, like decks of stratocumulus, reflect a great deal of sunlight back to space, and hence cool the planet. And you'll actually know this if you've ever been up in an aeroplane, riding above a big deck of clouds, maybe over the ocean. The glare you get from those clouds is reflected radiation, which affects the Earth's thermal balance. These marine stratocumulus clouds block out about 25% of the ocean's surface at any given time, reflecting a great deal of light. But clouds are complicated beasts. For example, cloud formation can depend on the amount of aerosols, pollution, small particles that are in the atmosphere. These provide little nuclei for cloud drops to form on and condense onto. So this has meant that, as humans emit aerosols into the atmosphere, we've affected cloud formation. Depending on who you ask, the interaction between aerosols and clouds has meant that humans have cooled the Earth by a great deal because of this, or not at all. Now this is really important because, as most of these aerosols come from burning coal, if we stop burning coal, you can expect this aerosol haze to decrease. And this in turn may lead to fewer of those low clouds and more warming. Again, depending on who you ask, there might be an extra half a degree or degree of warming when these aerosols are no longer in the atmosphere, or there might be very little. And it's really difficult to reduce this uncertainty. Believe me, thousands of people have spent careers trying to do so. Yet it's important in figuring out how much global warming we're in for. There arises another question. How will clouds respond to climate change? In a warmer world, will we see more cirrus clouds that tend to help warm the planet, or more stratocumulus clouds that tend to cool it down? Cloud feedbacks are among the dominant sources of uncertainty in figuring out how sensitive the climate is to increasing greenhouse emissions. When you look at the range of predictions for temperature increase in the future, even under the same scenario, 
A lot of that is dominated by precisely how the clouds will respond, and there are pretty good arguments on both sides. Most of the people who argue that global warming isn't going to be as bad as we think say that the clouds will help to cool the planet in the future, and the ones that are a bit more sceptical will say, well, perhaps there could be feedbacks that will cause the clouds to warm the planet in the future. But predicting how these clouds are going to respond has been hampered by difficulty in understanding the complicated microphysical processes that occur in clouds, and trouble in including them well in our climate models. So the typical climate model divides the Earth into grid boxes. It then solves the physical equations that govern temperature, precipitation, and so on in each box, and advances the model time step, allowing us to predict the future, or simulate the past. But the power of our computers limits how many grid boxes you can actually use. Even high-resolution modern-day climate models run on supercomputers that might run with grid boxes that are 50 kilometers long or wide. Processes that take place on scales smaller than 50 kilometers, like the formation and dissipation of clouds, have to be parametrized. So that means that we use our best observational data and physical knowledge to estimate the average effect of these processes across the whole grid box. Rather than explicitly simulating what every cloud is doing, they estimate how much cloud to expect based on things like temperature, humidity, radiation balance, etc. Sometimes the outputs from larger climate models will be fed into smaller climate models to see how they will respond. So for example, if you're trying to model a particular city, that might be less in scale than 50 kilometer grid boxes. So you'd use the grid box temperature and apply that to a model of your city to see how it will respond. But all of this downscaling and this use of parametrizations, it inevitably means that you miss out on some important physics. Scientists test, validate and tweak their models as much as possible to try to be confident that they're producing accurate and physically consistent results, things that match simulations of previous eras, for example. But without a replica Earth, this parametrization is the best we can do for now. This new paper, however, uses a state-of-the-art high-resolution climate model to specifically look at just a region of these important cooling stratocumulus clouds. And here, they explicitly simulate the cloud processes, which is very difficult to do because they can be quite turbulent, and so the length scale you need is very small. So they've simulated specifically a very, very small patch of cloud, just 5 kilometers by 5 kilometers under climate change. Even doing this and getting it anywhere close to right took supercomputers that ran for thousands of hours on end. So you can see why they have to have these parametrizations for global climate models. But this, this study was just looking at the effect of climate change on these stratocumulus clouds. And what they find is rather alarming, as suggested by the title of the paper. Possible climate transitions from breakup of stratocumulus decks under greenhouse warming. So what they found was that at very high temperatures and carbon dioxide concentrations, the layers of stratocumulus clouds suddenly break up. As Natalie Walchover put it in the Quanta article, this happens for two reasons. Quote, First, when higher CO2 levels make Earth's surface and sky hotter, the extra heat drives stronger turbulence inside the clouds. The turbulence mixes moist air near the top of the cloud, pushing it up and out through an important boundary layer that caps stratocumulus clouds, while drawing in dry air from above. Entrainment, as this is called, through this vigorous turbulence, works to break up the cloud. Secondly, as the greenhouse effect makes the upper atmosphere warmer, and thus more humid, the cooling of the tops of stratocumulus clouds from above becomes less efficient. 
This cooling is essential because it causes globs of cold, moist air from the top of the cloud to sink, making room for more warm, moist air near the Earth's surface to rise into the cloud and become part of it. So when cooling gets less effective, and you can't have this transition, stratocumulus clouds grow thin. The breakup of these clouds, if it happens, leads to dramatic warming at the surface. If it happened across the world, this would lead to sudden 8 degrees Celsius rises in temperature, which it's pretty safe to say would be truly catastrophic. 2 degrees is bad enough on what we're trying to avoid with Paris. Some people have said that 4 degrees is incompatible with organised human civilization, and 4 degrees would make it impossible to go outside in the summer in some regions. So you can imagine that 8 degrees is just unthinkable. What's more, the change was very difficult to reverse by simply reducing the concentration of CO2. It's like a phase transition, melting from ice to water. If you then take the ice back below 0 degrees, it doesn't freeze again instantly. Yet large temperature swings have happened in the planet's past. Some of them, like the event called the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, which happened around 55 million years ago, well that was more than 8 degrees warmer than today's climate. Scientists had previously been unsure what could cause the climate to warm by that much. CO2 concentrations and the configuration of continents, the solar cycles and so on, the volcanoes, they couldn't really completely figure out what's going on with the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum, and there's still lots of debate about it, and this paper will by no means resolve that debate because it's been going for a long time. But they did suspect that clouds might be the culprit. If this research holds up then, they might have part of the solution to why Earth's climate was so much hotter back then. They might have suffered from a similar breakup of these marine stratocumulus clouds that led to a warmer world. So there are some obvious caveats to make here. First off, the model they used is a model. One of the assumptions that it made that might be important is that it assumed that Earth's circulation remains roughly the same. But there may be changes to this circulation in the future, especially under a high climate change scenario. And these could make the stratocumulus clouds more stable, or it might serve to make them less stable. We don't know if this effect would be reproduced across the entire ocean or just in some places. So more research is clearly needed. The main caveat, though, is that the threshold where this happens appears to be very high. We're talking about 1,200 parts per million of CO2, which is more than three times what we have today. All of human influence so far has dumped about 130 parts per million of CO2 into the atmosphere. So it's the kind of thing that we only begin to approach at the end of the century if we just continue to burn fossil fuels, and especially coal, like there's no tomorrow. And by this point, even without the stratocumulus cloud feedbacks, the planet has already warmed by around 4 degrees Celsius, possibly much more. So this isn't some scary phenomenon that will happen tomorrow, or even by 2050. And in fact, the tipping point may be too far off to be a realistic threat. So I think you should really stick it on the pile of unlikely but terrifying potential climate disasters, along with, say, a leak in methane from the Arctic permafrost if that heats up too much. And put bluntly, if we ever got to the stage where we had to worry about stratocumulus clouds breaking up in this way, we would have already screwed up the planet almost beyond repair, and we'd probably have to at least try and use geoengineering to fix it, of which more in future episodes. But given that emissions are still increasing, even now, even with Paris and all the optimism and all the solar panels, and carbon dioxide is continuing to accumulate in the atmosphere, studies like this are pointing out the inherent danger in what we're doing. 
We do not fully understand the climate system. Our predictions and our models aren't perfect. But what we do know is that we're taking it into unprecedented territory, and the risks of some alarming feedback like this happening can only increase, as we talked about in our climate change shows and the show on Hothouse Earth. So, these cloudless skies, from what we know now, are unlikely to doom us all tomorrow. But for crying out loud, we need to reduce our carbon emissions before we get to find out precisely when this kind of thing can kick in. Because if we're still just discovering feedback mechanisms that we hadn't considered before, or learning more about how they may lead to damaging climate change, who knows what's still out there? It's a cliche, but we still only have the one planet. And I'd quite like to live here a little longer, if that's okay with you. So that brings us down to our third and final story of this set of thermonuclear takes, and those of you with a nervous disposition may be relieved to hear that we're returning to the nice, reassuring world of artificial intelligence. Specifically, we're talking about OpenAI's new neural network. Now, OpenAI, they're a serious, privately funded but non-profit organisation that was set up with an endowment of $1 billion by founders including Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, blah blah blah, all your usual Silicon Valley billionaires are involved, essentially to do pure AI research. They were only founded in 2015, but they already have a reputation as a serious organisation that has contributed to AI research in lots of important ways, and I think we may have quoted from one of their reports in our Malicious AI episode already. So all of this is to say that when they tell you that they have a neural network that's so advanced they're afraid to unleash it onto an unsuspecting public, you should sit up and pay attention. This is a new text generator called GPT-2 that is apparently so good at generating text that matches the tone and content of the stuff it's fed, the OpenAI have decided not to make it publicly available, fearing that it might be misused. We've talked a little bit before about how you can use neural networks fed with a sufficient amount of data to produce text that seems a little bit human-esque. We even did some of this ourselves in the episode AI Shakespeare vs. AI Trump, where we fed a very simple neural network the work of the bard and the, um, the Twitter magnum opus of the current president, and we laughed when we found something that sounded vaguely coherent. But you'll also remember from that and from our episode uh, seduced by a robot about the chatbots that people have tried to develop, that the main problem was that the neural network offers stuff that's basically extremely incoherent. It really has no ability to remember context... It can't produce work that has any kind of logical flow to it. The words used, the syntax, and even some of the turns of phrase might be similar, enough to give a feel of what the neural network was trained on anyway. But it was more of a surreal curiosity than something you'd actually want to talk to or read for a long time. But this neural network appears to be different. Of course, given that it's not published and it's all done behind closed doors, it's difficult to be completely sure... You know, I can't reproduce the experiment or anything like that, but... The neural network has been trained on a sample of 4 gigabytes of text scraped from the internet. And as you can imagine, from any form of intelligence, artificial or otherwise, being raised just on the internet makes for a pretty weird persona. But take this as an example of what I mean. So they gave a prompt to the neural network. The prompt is the initial sort of piece of stimulus, the thing that it has to write about. The prompt was... In a shocking finding, scientists discovered a herd of unicorns living in a remote, previously unexplored valley in the Andes Mountains. Even more surprising to the researchers was the fact that the unicorns spoke perfect English. After ten attempts, the machine came up with this. 
The scientists named the population after their distinctive horn, Ovid's unicorn. These four-horned silver-white unicorns were previously unknown to science. Now, after almost two centuries, the mystery of what sparked this odd phenomenon is finally solved. Dr. Georges Perez, an evolutionary biologist from the University of La Paz, and several companions, were exploring the Andes Mountains when they found a small valley, with no other humans or animals. Perez noticed that the valley had what appeared to be a natural fountain, surrounded by two peaks of rock and silver snow. Perez and his friends were astonished to see the unicorn herd. These creatures could be seen from the air without having to move too much to see them. They were so close they could touch their horns. While examining these bizarre creatures, the scientists discovered that the creatures also spoke some fairly regular English. Perez stated, We can see, for example, that they have a common language, something like a dialect or dialectic. Dr. Perez believes that the unicorns may have originated in Argentina, where the animals were believed to be descendants of a lost race of people who lived there before the arrival of humans in those parts of South America. While their origins are still unclear, some believe that perhaps the creatures were created when a human and a unicorn met each other in a time before human civilization. According to Perez, in South America, such incidents seem to be quite common. However, Perez also pointed out that it is likely that the only way of knowing for sure if the unicorns are indeed the descendants of a lost alien race is through DNA. But they seem to be com able to communicate in English quite well, which I believe is a sign of evolution, or at least a change in its social organisation, said the scientist. So, if you're like me, when you first read this, the concept that this could have been written by an AI kind of sent shivers up your spine. I mean, as well as being damn amusing and possibly suggesting that this neural network is on some powerful hallucinogenic drugs, this is incredibly coherent. In fact, it's far and away the most coherent thing I've ever read from a neural network. You'd have to examine this really, really hard to have any idea that it wasn't written by a human from the same basic prompt. In fact, I reckon if they did a sort of Turing test on me now and gave me five articles that were written by, I don't know, people from high school and five articles that were written by this AI to that standard, I'm not sure I'd be able to tell the difference. And that is terrifying. The neural network is obviously imitating some of the millions of science and technology articles that it's read. The overall structure of the article, complete with pull quotes and relating to context, is something that you see it's gathered from the types of articles that, well, I write a lot of the time, and press releases that are all over the internet. But what's scary and fascinating is just how long it's capable of maintaining this style, how it seems to be coherently tracking the subject at hand, staying on topic, even forming a, a narrative structure with a beginning, a middle and an end. So what I'd always thought with this approach to AI was that essentially it would never succeed in achieving anything that useful. That you couldn't really imitate a human just by statistically associating words and phrases with each other without any understanding of the underlying concepts that you're talking about, without any real consciousness there. But reading this, even though it's evidently an example that was picked as it worked particularly well, I am no longer so convinced that neural networks might not be able to fool humans that they are indeed sentient. It seems as if, spookily enough, it actually understands these underlying concepts to some degree. Or at any rate, a little bit like Steve Verzik's Mixuku, they can bluff their way through a sufficiently wide range of situations to convince people that they do understand what they're talking about, rather than just generating stuff that sort of is a super mishmash of what they've been fed on. Now, without knowing what kind of models of language they've put into this AI, it's difficult to know whether this is a particularly good example of what it's doing, how much human understanding has been sort of integrated into the neural network, uh, how applicable it would be to different kinds of situation and so on. But 
It certainly is something that made me sit up and notice when I read it. The creators of the neural net said in a blog post, quote, As the above samples show, our model is capable of generating samples from a variety of prompts that feel close to human quality and show coherence over a page or more of text. Nevertheless, we have observed failure modes, such as repetitive text, word modelling failures, e.g. the model sometimes writes about fires happening underwater, and unnatural topic switching. Exploring these types of weaknesses of language models is an active area of research in the natural language processing community. Overall, we find that it takes a few tries to get a good sample, with the number of tries depending on how familiar the model is with the context. When prompted with topics that are highly represented in the data, Brexit, Miley Cyrus, Lord of the Rings, and so on, it seems to be capable of generating reasonable samples about half the time. The opposite is also true. On highly technical or esoteric types of content, the model can perform poorly. Fine-tuning offers the potential for even more detailed control over generated samples. For example, we can fine-tune GPT-2 on the Amazon Reviews dataset and use this to let us write reviews conditioned on things like star rating and category. These samples have substantial policy implications. Large language models are becoming increasingly easy to steer towards scalable, customised, coherent text generation, which in turn could be used in a number of beneficial as well as malicious ways. We'll discuss these implications below in more detail, and outline a publication experiment we're taking in light of such considerations. End quote. The idea of tailoring this thing to say whatever you want, on feeding it whatever content you want and actually producing responses of that kind of coherence, is again scary. I just imagine feeding in all these podcast scripts and then I never have to work another day in my life, but what if someone else does it first, you know? Or alternatively, I guess I could feed in all my chat logs and then instead of talking to my friends, I could just let the robot do it and hope that it didn't talk about fires underwater or engage in repetitive text or eerie topic switching. So the AI world is hardly immune to having a great deal of hype surrounding it, and quite often developments can seem to be a lot snazzier than they actually are. Most of the people I've spoken to who work on the ground with particular AI algorithms day to day are fed up of the overblown fears about AI consciousness and superintelligence, you know, some of the things we dealt with in our Singularity episodes. They say that it's just too far from where we are at present as to be almost inconceivable, like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. And I certainly don't think that this AI is in any way conscious or even close. But as we discussed in the episodes on malicious uses for AI, an AI doesn't need to be conscious to wreak massive damage to society. The fact that, for example, the thing seems to be really good at writing press release-style articles is a wake-up call for me. I've made money that way in the past. If this AI could genuinely produce podcast scripts or articles that are competitive with, or on a level with what I can write, then that's game over for me. I'll have to take up something that neural networks will never be able to do, or become a Luddite and live in the hills. On a serious note though, alongside genuine concerns about something like this rendering people unemployed or underemployed, imagine what it could do if unleashed onto the political world that we have at the moment. Already with fake news, deepfake images, and armies of paid trolls and bots on social media, it's extremely difficult to trust anything you see online. Our information ecosystem has been poisoned and with disastrous results, undermining faith in democracy and institutions, and enhancing political polarisation. We've seen how things like the YouTube algorithm recommending all kinds of horrifying conspiracy videos lead people down these rabbit holes that they weren't expecting to be involved in. They're manipulative of people's psychology. You have a whole industry that's built on 
manipulating and maintaining people's attention, and then you wonder how it's leading to all of these horrible psychological consequences. And in the future, algorithms like this could unleash countless convincing agents into the same information ecosystem, holding court with their human interlocutors until none of us are ever really sure whether we're talking to another person or not. The OpenAI team are aware of this as they write in their blog post. Quote, Large general language models could have significant societal impacts and also have many near-term applications. This system could be used to create AI writing assistants, more capable dialogue agents, unsupervised translation between languages, better speech recognition systems. But we can also imagine the application of these models for malicious purposes, including the following, or others that we can't yet anticipate. Misleading news, impersonating others, automating the production of abusive or faked content to post on social media, automating the production of spam or phishing content. These findings, combined with earlier results on synthetic imagery, audio and video, imply that technologies are reducing the cost of generating fake content and waging disinformation campaigns. The public at large will need to become more sceptical of text that they find on the internet, just as the deepfakes phenomenon calls for more scepticism about images. So that's all part of the reason why they say they're keeping the AI under wraps. Just for one last moment of scary fun, this is a sample of the text that the GPT AI wrote when it was asked to describe itself. Quote, This new artificial intelligence approach could revolutionise machine learning by making it a far more effective tool to teach machines about the workings of the language. Deep learning systems currently only have the ability to learn something specific, a particular sentence, set of words, or even a word or phrase or what certain types of input, for example how words are written on paper, cause certain behaviours on computer screens. End quote. Hello to you too, GPT-2. There are so many things I could say about this, and what it might look like in 5 years, in 10 years, in 20 years if developments continue in this way, the practical, societal, even philosophical implications, but in all honesty I'm still a little bit awestruck by how good this neural network appears to be. It's making me rethink some of my scepticism about whether neural nets could pass the Turing test, fooling humans into thinking that they're talking to other humans. And once that happens, we're really in a whole new world, and it's coming more quickly than I expected. As they say, more on this story as it develops. We'll be keeping a close AI on this one. So that about wraps it up for this episode of Thermonuclear Takes. A reminder, please, that our 100th episode competition is still open, and you still have a great chance of winning it. You need to write to me to enter, explaining what is physics. You can interpret that as broadly or as narrowly as you like. You can write to me via email at physicspod at outlook.com. That's physicspod at outlook.com. Or via the contact form on our website at www.physicspodcast.com. Or indeed via Twitter and Facebook pages for physical attraction. Deadline is the end of March. All entrants will feature on the 100th anniversary show. Top prizes include sets of books from the authors that we've interviewed so far and physical attraction mugs alongside your right to dictate the future content of an episode of the show. You can find more details on the website's about page at physicspodcast.com, Facebook page, or by listening to the episode that dealt with the 100th episode competition. If you have any comments, questions, show ideas, or concerns, you can get in touch via the contact form on our website. That goes straight to my email, and I read and respond to pretty much everything people send there, so go wild. It's always nice to hear from you. Another reminder that you can donate to the show using the PayPal link on our website or subscribe for the bonus episodes on Patreon. PayPal donations of over $3 count as a purchase of past bonus episodes, so if you're craving more physical attraction, that's one way to get it. But if you don't want to do that, there's plenty of other ways to help us out. 
You can review the show, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you send us a review, why not send me your address and I can send you a nice physical attraction postcard as thanks. No anthrax, I promise. Alongside that, the best thing you can do is always, always, always to tell as many friends about the show as possible. Let people know if you're enjoying it and they're looking for podcasts, sharing it via social media, etc. As I'm sure you all know, this is a solo project, a labour of love for me, and I'll carry on for as long as I possibly can. But the more people listen, the greater a thing we can build here, and the more I know what kind of thing you want to hear. We'll be back later this week with the next episode in the Nuclear Fusion series. Until then... By the way, our theme music is Our Story by Melody Sheep. And you can find Melody Sheep's whole wonderful album, all of scientific-based tunes, up on melodysheep.bandcamp.com. It's from the free music archive where I get all the music for this show, but it's really worth recommending them and uh, attributing them to more often, so I'll try and keep that in the outros of future shows. melodysheep.bandcamp.com See you next time.